Welcome to On Olive Oil, hosted by Curtis Cord, the publisher of Olive Oil Times. Featuring 30-minute discussions with people throughout the world, sharing their unique perspectives on the ever-changing olive oil landscape. This week's guest is international consultant and expert taster, Paul Vossen. When you're trying to win an award at a competition like this, you better do absolutely everything right in order to be able to have that pristine olive oil. Now, from New York City, here's Curtis Cord. The renowned olive oil expert Paul Vossen recently retired after 36 years with the University of California Cooperative Extension as a farm advisor in Sonoma and Marin counties, where he also managed the first olive oil taste panel in the U.S. to become recognized by the International Olive Oil Council. These days, he is an international consultant in olive oil production, processing, and sensory evaluation, and a judge at the New York International Olive Oil Competition, where he served as its panel leader in 2014. Welcome, Paul. Well, thanks. Thank you very much. Actually, you said I was retired. I, I have 29 days, working days left, so. <laughs> <laughs> we'll make the most of them. <laughs> not, not that I'm counting. <laughs> so are you one of those people who's going to retire just to find yourself even busier than you were before? Uh, yeah, probably. I've got already got a lot of uh, consulting gigs lined up. I'm going to be doing some traveling uh, plans to go over to Albania. I'm working with the USAID project in Albania, trying to help them produce uh, higher quality olive oil. I'm going to be teaching a processing three-day processing course there. And then um, in October, there's an international meeting. International Society of Horticulture has a symposium every four years, and this year it's in Croatia. So uh, anyway, yes, I'm going to be doing a lot of different things. One of the other things about my job as a public employee with the University of California, is that I really haven't been able to do very much consulting within California. And we have several hundred producers in California, so I should be able to do a little bit more private consulting now right here in California, too. So, And what do you do when you go to these consulting gigs, as you put it? Well, I'm primarily a horticulturist. Uh, so uh, one of the first things I do is go take a look at their orchards and see what they're doing right, uh, maybe some of the problems, what might what I might be able to help them with. You know, we'll look at uh, the varieties and the spacing and the pruning and the nutrition and irrigation, and then, of course, evaluate the quality of the fruit. One of the other problems that we have here in California is olive fruit fly, and so, you know, a number of producers have been struggling with how to control that insect, and, of course, if you've got olive fruit fly damage, that that really affects negatively affects uh, olive oil quality. So it's pretty hard to produce high quality olive oil when you've got olive fruit fly damage. So those are some of the things I help them with. And then uh, I also have quite a bit of expertise in olive oil processing. I've been working on that for quite a while and done some number of experiments here in California evaluating processing systems. So I uh, help people with um, in making decisions on fineness of the paste, uh, malaxation time and temperature, whether to use any adjuvants like talc or enzymes and the effects that those might have. Essentially how to produce the, you know, the best quality olive oil they possibly can with the olives that they have. Um, and then, of course, uh, 
uh, as you stated in the introduction, I'm an expert uh, taster, so usually we'll sit down with people and taste their oils, help them decide how to store their oils, so, you know, where to store them so that they make sure they're not blending something in a storage tank that's going to diminish the quality, um, help them with their blends a little bit later on uh, after the oils settle a little bit. So, you know, it's kind of a full-fledged um, assistance to try and help them produce the highest quality olive oil possible. I also noticed you wrote a book on organic farming. So is, is a lot of your consultation uh, focused on, on that? Uh, well, I do a little of both. Uh, there's been quite a bit of interest in organic production. And uh, we have focused, you know, for years and years and years on you know, production issues that weren't centered or didn't really take into account the laws and regulations regarding organic production, organic certification. And so when you begin to start to look at some of the details of producing things organically, you're limited in the types of fertilizers you can use. You're certainly limited in any of the uh, pesticides. And when I say the word pesticide, people automatically think, uh, you know, some toxic substance. But there are a lot of pesticides and things that just kill pests that are also organic, things like minerals and soaps and uh, some oils and things like that. So we, we look at what can be done within the organic certification process and, uh, of course, the whole, the whole overall orchard management system as well. And then within the processing area, organic basically just means you can't have something go through conventional and then follow it with organic without completing completely cleaning the whole um, the whole mill, the whole processing system. So, um, yeah, I do a lot of work with organic producers, but I also do a lot of work with conventional producers uh, as well. So, And out in California, are they overwhelmingly organic? Or Well, the number of producers are overwhelmingly organic, but the, uh, the volume is overwhelmingly conventional, hmm. as most of our big growers are not organic producers, but most of our, most of our producers in number... Uh, and they're small scale, are, are organic. It's about 70% in, in number organic. So. Are, there, are there efforts underway by those larger producers to, to go organic or not really yet? Um, not really yet. Um, you know, one of the inter interesting things about organic olive oil is that it has an advantage in the marketplace really only from the standpoint of if there were two you know, competing products maybe side by side somewhere at the, about the same price, then the organic one has an advantage. But you already have um, these gourmet specialty olive oils at such a high price that you, you really can't add on much of a price to an organic product and expect, uh, expect to get it without having a negative effect uh, just from the, from the price standpoint. And so from that you you know you really really don't have much of an economic advantage in being organic, especially because growing things organically is more expensive. Uh, the two primary problems in growing something organically are weed control. In the case of olive fruit fly, controlling olive fruit fly organically, but it's really mostly weed control. Uh, also, oh, excuse me, nutrition is one of the key factors. So you can't use conventional fertilizers and you can't use conventional herbicides. So you've got to mechanically control weeds or, or smother the weeds with mulch or something like that. And then the fertilizers, you're, you're limited to you know, organic products, either concentrated 
organic products or compost or things like that. And those are just more expensive to buy and to move around and to apply. So your consulting mills and, and farms and, and producers has taken you to some pretty out of the way places, hasn't it? Uh, yes, I've been been all over the world. Uh, just about every other place that grows olives uh, I have visited, uh, including Iraq. Actually, the U.S. government hired me to go over to Iraq and, and I went twice and helped uh, some of the Iraqi farmers uh, with some decisions that they were looking at. And also the U.S. government had installed a couple of mills there. Uh, what's interesting is that um, farmers are farmers. Everywhere in the world, they're, uh, you know, they're good people. You go out to the field and stand there and look at their orchards or help them in the mills. And, you know, they all have uh, about the same questions. How should I prune these trees? How much water do they need? What are my options for fertilizing uh, when should I harvest, you know, things like that. So it's uh, it's pretty universal. It's just a, a little bit difficult getting there sometimes. And the questions might be the same, but the answers are different, aren't they? Taking well, into account where they are and, and climatic conditions. Yeah, I, I, I think one of the biggest differences you see, particularly in the old world, is that olives traditionally were grown in places where you really couldn't grow other things. You wouldn't plant olives, for example, along the, the river bottoms where you might have irrigation water and you could grow you know, other tree crops or vegetables or something that's uh, you know, actually of a higher value. Where people grew olives were kind of on the hillsides where irrigation water wasn't available, where you might substitute a uh, crop like wheat or sorghum or something like that that's, you know, it's an annual crop and you come in and plant olives. And so one of the interesting things that's happened really over the last 30 years, with especially with drip irrigation, people began to irrigate olives. And as soon as you irrigate olives, you can tremendously increase production. Uh, four or five times the, the amount of fruit can be produced from an irrigated orchard versus a a dry land or dry farmed orchard. Now, it depends on how deep the soil is and how much rainfall you get and those kinds of things also. But that really is one of the main questions that I get is how, how do I set up a drip irrigation system? How many lines do I need? Spacing of the emitters? Uh, how often do we let it run? Um, and how often do we run it every day, every other day, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, that's kind of a universal question all over the place. And managing irrigation is one of the most important things you can do in an olive orchard, uh, not only from the standpoint of increasing production, but also from the standpoint of oil quality. We've done some research work here and others have followed up with similar research where we've compared irrigating trees at different amounts um, all the way from, you know, 100% of what the trees could possibly use down to 15% of what the trees could, could possibly use. And we see quite a difference in tree growth, production. We also see a huge difference in the quality of the oil that's produced from those olives. If you give olive trees anything above about 70% of what they could, uh, could use, you're going to end up with a fairly bland olive oil because the olives are so pumped up with water, uh, and most of the flavor components in olive oil or in an olive are water-soluble. So when you have sort of these diluted-out olives, you ended up with diluted-out olive oil. 
And is that the same thing with wine? Well, it's a little bit different with wine, uh, but um, I mean, because we hear about we hear about stressing the grapes or stressing the olives. Is that is that uh, the case where the quality is enhanced? Yes. What the if you talk to uh, viticulturists, one of their main objectives is uh, monitoring and managing the vigor in their vineyards. So yeah, that's very important. You can't have pumped up uh, wine grapes either. You're going to end up with bland wine. And in California, there are some groves that don't irrigate at all or or very little. In that yes. Case. Yes, there are. There, there are actually are quite a few. And what, what makes them work is that- The one that comes they, to mind is Berkeley olive groves. Yes. And I noticed they've won several awards. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I think they've won three awards. Yeah, they won no four awards right. uh, in New York. So uh, yeah, I've, I've known them for quite a while. That's a really interesting story. That that ranch was originally started by some uh, professors in Berkeley that were looking for an alternative investment. And they bought this property up there, planted the olives. And then, it, I don't know, fell apart. Or, I'm not sure exactly what happened. But uh, uh, the land came up for sale and, and it was purchased and sort of rejuvenated. I've actually consulted with the owner a couple of times about uh, how to manage those trees. But yeah, uh, what brings out these those intense flavors in olives is making sure that you don't have uh, fruit that's all pumped up with uh, too much water. Yeah, you know, Paul, you and I have spoken about this before, but one of the things many of us wanted to see this year at the New York competition was better results for Greece. But the success rate has slipped even further. Well, uh, first of all, I noticed there are at least were a few nice uh, olive oils from Greece. Uh, they had they had several winners, including um, two best of class oils. So it's not that they can't produce fantastic olive oils because there are some producers in Greece that are producing fantastic olive oils. But Greece has a number of problems. Just uh, sort of inherently, the you know the country is not as uh, uh, not as rich, not as wealthy as some of the other European countries. You know, everybody knows they're they've got economic problems. And then that's coupled with sort of a tradition, really a long tradition of the way they've produced things there in the past. Um, and then I've been to Greece several times and worked with a number of producers there. They just don't handle the fruit uh, as carefully as some other places. Uh, it's very common to see harvest uh, down onto the ground. They pick the fruit up and put it into bags, pile the bags up onto trailers, move that fruit not very quickly to the mill. There's a there's a lag time period there. And so you begin to get some fermentation. I've also seen uh, instances where olive fruit fly wasn't controlled adequately and uh, and other instances where the mills just weren't uh, cleaned properly in between uh, batches. So you could have a fantastic set of uh, olives come in or, you know, some producer brings this fantastic olives in, but if the mill isn't completely clean, and I'm talking about pretty much taking it apart and, and opening up all, the t- all of the tubes and the pipes and the pumps and everything to completely clean it because you have a residual of product left over in one of these large uh, processing plants that could contaminate the next oil that's going through. So, you know, these competitions, like the competition in New York, we're looking for the absolute best olive oils. And the judges uh, segregate out any oil that has uh, any slight defect whatsoever. I mean, you can't, it's got to be, it's got to be fresh tasting. It can't be tired. 
You can't have any residual contaminations, any even slight defects. So when you're trying to win an award at a competition like this, you better do absolutely everything right in order to be able to have that pristine olive oil, uh, that you know, that ultra premium or super premium olive oil. Uh, otherwise, it's just not gonna, just not gonna cut it. Yeah, one out of every nine Greek entries, to be exact, was awarded at this at this competition. And I know that we've also talked about the Koroneki variety. And I know that you can taste the Koroneki. I know that the other judges know what a Koroneki tastes like. Do you think there's anything inherent in the Koroneki variety that that makes it less appealing to judges? And also, do you recall a predominant defect that was that was detected along with the Koroneki samples? Well, uh, on the contrary, uh, Koroneki is a fantastic variety. It has some wonderful characteristics. It uh, tends to be very fruity, uh, can have, depending on the, the maturity at harvest, uh, tends to have tropical fruit flavors. Uh, people associate banana, either green banana or ripe banana with Koroneki, but it also has a lot of other very interesting tropical fruit, fruit flavors. It is nicely bitter, nicely pungent, uh, spicy, uh, green, herbaceous. I mean, I, I can go on and on. Uh, it, if if, you, if a Koroneki is harvested um, at the peak of, of maturity where it's got just a little bit of color and processed, handled very, very carefully after harvest, it produces and can produce an absolutely fabulous olive oil. So it's not the variety. It is really the way that the fruit is handled uh, you know, within, within the entire process all the way from olive fruit fly damage to, um, you know, pristine equipment and temperature control and all those different kinds of things within the processing. One of the things we tend to see with Greek olive oils uh, um, is this sort of residual from uh, dirty processing equipment. And again, I I talked about it earlier, it's just keeping everything absolutely uh, pristine, clean, which means starting with clean equipment in the the, uh, fall. So you know, generally what would pass to happen is people have to take that equipment apart at the end of the year, com- completely clean it. And at the beginning of the harvest season, bring in totally perfect fruit that's harvested from the tree, not from the ground, no olifly damage, perfect uh, ripeness, and run that fruit through and essentially don't stop the equipment, run it for 24 hours a day and, and process that fruit you know, in an, in an immaculate state and then store it properly, of course, in tanks, et cetera, et cetera. So if that's done, and you'll see, you know, the, the people that won awards, gold awards or best of class awards, that's what they do. There's a tradition. I mean, if you, if, when, you when you go to Greece or you, you go to uh, uh, various places, particularly in the old world, there's a tradition of production that's um, been left over from at least hundreds and maybe even thousands of years of the way they used to do it. And one of the things that's happened from that is that people have developed a um, familiarity with those flavors. And one of the most frustrating things as an olive oil consultant and a judge, and you're sitting there talking to producers and uh, tell them that their oil is defective, uh, they say, well, what are you talking about? This is the way we've made oil for the last, you know, however many years, maybe generations. And these are the flavors that we like and the flavors that we love. And (laughs) very often the flavors that they like and the flavors that they love are uh, defects uh, in the oil that have come about from 
poor handling, uh, all the fruit fly damage, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, it's, um, it's no secret. I mean, if you, if you look at the history of olive oil production, and we're looking at, at at least five, 6,000 years and probably even longer, uh, how long have we had electricity? Well, not that long. So uh, the, the modern system where we bring high-quality fruit in, uh, it's deposited, it runs through the mill and runs through a stainless steel horizontal centrifuge and a stainless steel vertical centrifuge and is stored in stainless steel, never touched by human hands, uh, going through that process all in about 45 minutes to an hour. That's a, that's a new thing. So, you know, you look at the old system where, you know, the roads weren't very good. Uh, how do you get one of these green marbles or a little colored marbles off the tree anyway well you let them fall on the ground because they're so hard to pick it costs a lot to pick them so they fall on the ground they sit there for a while they start to oxidize they rot there's olifly damage doesn't get to the mill very quickly um, and the mill was what it was a maybe a stone that was pushed around in a circle by a, a mule or an ox or something like that and so you know just the whole whole process was was uh, completely different and it produced oil, and people consumed that oil, and they, they liked those flavors. One of the flavors that people continue to like is fermentation. Now, you've been doing this for 36, uh, at least 36 years. How long has this knowledge been around, how to, how to produce high-quality olive oil like that? Uh, I'm just going to throw a number out, but you know something like 40 to 50 years. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not unlike you use the um, analogy of wine, uh, a little while ago, uh, white wines for many, many years weren't very good. And one of the reasons is because the the flavors of white wines are much more subtle than the flavors in red wines. And we really have only had these fantastically light, subtle, fruity white wines uh, since we began to use the temperature control and fermentation. So when you control the temperature and fermentation, you don't allow the wine uh, to heat up which is what it naturally does during fermentation. And when it heats up, or it volatilizes off a lot of those really interesting aromatics. And so same thing with, with olives, as I described earlier. We, we bring in very high-quality fruit without any damage and process it very quickly at a low temperature, um, manipulate uh, the time and temp- temperature of the malaxation, the, the crushing process so we don't heat the uh, or the paste up and, and then extract that essence from that fruit, uh, well, you know, that's really only been around for a very short period of time. Which is not very long against the backdrop of a thousand-year-old tradition, traditional way of making something. That's exactly right. We didn't get to chat in New York very much at the award celebration, but there was a lot of energy in that room. Oh, yeah. Well, the, one of the fantastic things about the New York competition, uh, first of all, it's huge. And so you get entries, really interesting entries from all over the world. Everybody wants to, to win at New York because the U.S. is a huge market. So people want to sell their olive oil in the U.S. market. But the other big thing is the, uh, the promotional efforts and the, the prestige that is uh, garnered by winning an award in New York. I mean, you can just see it by going to your website. And then, of course, the awards uh, ceremonies and things like that, where people are really, producers are really given a lot of recognition for, for what they do. And this is not often the case. A lot of these other competitions, you know, they get an award and it kind of, nobody ever hears about it. 
but uh, not so with New York. So uh, that's why people, one of the reasons why people really like the New York competition. Yeah. Did you get to sit, to talk to the other people in the in the room? Yeah. There's a lot of excitement, and when you know when somebody wins an award at, at New York, they're just absolutely blown away <laughs> by how wonderful it is. They're just pleased uh, to no end of being able to win some type of an award from from New York, whether it's whether it's silver or gold or best of class. But a silver award from New York is uh, is good too. Yeah. Well, I've been a, a judge in a lot of different places, um, you know, uh, around the world, and the New York competition is uh, is really nice for a couple of things. One of the things that I like about it also is that you separate out the Northern Hemisphere and Southern Hemisphere. Now, they're judged at the same time, but uh, it really is unfair to uh, judge them against each other because you're looking at six months difference in harvest time. You know, they're just, they're just if you if you judge at one time of the year, the Southern Hemisphere oils are not going to be as fresh. And if you judge at another time of the year, the uh, Northern Hemisphere oils aren't going to be quite as fresh. So that's, that's one of the things I really like about the New York competition as well. You know, and we're I, finding that some of the Southern Hemisphere producers are harvesting just before they send it. Uh, well, that's that's happened uh, in in a number of uh, uh, competitions as well, and so that's one of the reasons why you'd like to uh, separate the awards out. But a couple of weeks could make a huge difference. Oh right? yeah, it's, for it's, example, it's, if they're in a place where they can't harvest in March, it simply can't be done. Uh, and I I would imagine that there are places in the Southern Hemisphere, for example where you cannot harvest in March. Is that true? That's true. Or, or if you do harvest in March, you're going to end up with olives that are so green and bitter and pungent that they wouldn't, nope. wouldn't win an award anyway because they'd be so out of balance. Right. Yeah. You've got to have at least a certain level of maturity before you can um, you know, get make a decent oil out of it. So there are going to be some producers who simply can't participate because they don't harvest in time to, to send it off in April, in early, right. in early April. Right, or or they've essentially got last year's oil. So then now you've got an oil that's you know eleven months old. So that's that's hard to compete uh, with a, f- a fresh product versus something that's you know eight, nine, ten, eleven months old. This year it's a little later. It's more towards late April. So hopefully we'll we'll bring more of those uh, those producers in. You know, and that's a good time for Northern Hemisphere oils as well. Um, you know, a lot of those oils are harvested in. Um, Probably the earliest ones would be September, but a lot of them are harvested in October, November. Um, they go into settling tanks and have a chance to kind of mellow out, but they're still quite fresh. So there there's really isn't any problem with evaluating those oils at that time of the year. So how do you look back at 36 years at the University of California Cooperative Extension? Well, uh, it's a great job. Um, in that I've had the ability to, you know, from the standpoint of academic freedom within the university uh, system, be able to kind of pick and choose some of the projects I wanted to work on. I've done a number of things. I did quite a bit of work here in in this local area with specialty crops producers, helping people grow uh, berries and gourmet apples. And air, I was one of the first people to grow heirloom tomatoes in the United States. Um, you know, things like that that have that have been success stories. And we have a lot of small scale producers that are producing some fantastic products here right now. When I look back on it, some of my you know greatest memories really are working, though, with olive oil. And I think one of my best accomplishments was getting this olive oil taste panel started. I went on sabbatical leave in 1996 and went to um, Europe 
and the Italians and the Spanish and the Greeks, but primarily the Italians at that time, were doing a lot of olive oil tasting. And I tasted a lot of olive oils with them and learned about tasting olive oils. And then um, they were using those tasting notes and describing olive oils in ways that nobody had ever really described olive oils before. Uh, most of the people were talking about, well, this is, you know, this is a good olive oil and this is a medium olive oil and this is a not so good olive oil. But really to sit down and talk about the specific characteristics of, of why you might rate them that way was, was something foreign to a lot of people. So I came back and started a taste panel here in California and there were a number of producers here that were producing olive oils and really they had no idea whether they were producing a good olive oil or not. In fact, in some cases they weren't producing a very good olive oil. I remember one of the producers we had here uh, had, a, had an old press and he was producing olive oils that had the defects of um, uh, fermentation, um, you know, aerobic fermentation from, from a press, from the mats. And uh, everybody was thinking how wonderful it was when, when it really wasn't very wonderful. So probably the sort of the legacy of people being able to produce gourmet olive oils in the United States came from that taste panel because we started tasting olive oils. Uh, the taste panel members were members of the industry, were part of the industry, and people started talking about flavors in olive oils and how do you produce a better olive oil and what's a good one what's how does bitterness and pungency enter into the positive characteristics of olive oil fruitiness of uh, the herbaceousness and the spiciness and the freshness uh, or the ripe characteristics and so the, i've started teaching courses in sensory evaluation um, through the university and i would say 90 percent probably of the producers in california have taken uh, that course, in some some cases they've taken it more than once, and so they went back and they started really looking at uh, how they handled that fruit when they were harvesting it, how they were processing it and storing it. And um, I mean, I'm proud to say that I think that that greatly influenced the quality of olive oils coming out of California. Uh, and I think uh, part of that is the producer's knowledge of, of what an olive oil should be. And the only way they would know what an olive oil should be is to be able to taste them and, and learn from, you know, sensory, the sensory evaluation. Speaking of sensory evaluation, I was wondering if you had a personal technique when you sit down to taste so many oils. <laughs> That's a very good question. One of the things that I learned in tasting olive oils right from the beginning, basically I start with uh, evaluating the aroma. Uh, a lot can be deduced from the aroma of the oil. So spending a little bit of time and getting, making sure there are plenty of volatiles within the headspace of that glass, which also means that it's nice to have a glass that has a little bit of headspace that you can close and kind of swirl around a little bit and, and you know, get a good whiff, uh, which doesn't work a lot of times where you're, you know, just standing around in the mill or, or you've got a little plastic cup that you can't close very well or trying to smell it out of the bottle or something like that. Mm -hmm. And of course, you also don't want a lot of uh, competing aromas. I don't, for example, go to a mill, uh, go back in the back room or go out into the storage tank area and, uh, you know, pull an olive oil out of there and give somebody a real evaluation of their oils. You might be able to do something quick and down and dirty, but you really want to taste the olive oils. You should be in a place where there aren't a lot of competing aromas nice and quiet, sit down, take your time, and again, start with, start with the aroma. Get a good, nice whiff of it. You can 
you can tell a lot from the aroma of the oil. And I always rate the aroma, you know, on a scale of one to 10, what's, what's the intensity of the aroma, and then what are some of the characteristics of the aroma. And then I put it in my mouth, and to avoid uh, sucking in air and getting some oil down into my windpipe, which can happen sometimes, I tilt my head down a little bit so I make sure that I'm when I'm bubbling air through the oil uh, to volatilize it, um, that I don't pull it onto my windpipe. Because if you've got bitter and pungent oils and you hit it on your windpipe, you can you'll be ruined. It can really blow your it can <laughs> really blow it. yeah yeah really blow you away. Um, so that's one technique. So tilt your head down just a little bit, you know, slurp like that, get some air into the oil. And, uh, and then I swallow it and then get the retro, retro nasal effect um, and, then, and then evaluate it. And, of course, you know, years and years and years of experience in tasting oils, you can tell pretty quickly, you know, what you've got there. Um, if it's, and how much of it, how much, how important is the retro nasal effect? Oh, it's huge. You know, it's, it's part of the taste. It's, a, it's, it's really integral uh, in, in, the, in the taste part of it in your mouth. Now, you know, when I say taste... Actually, we smell olive oils. I mean, the taste would give us bitterness and pungency. All of the other flavors that we associate, the characteristics that we identify with um, olive oils, the ripe fruit flavors, the green grassiness, the cinnamon, the nettles, the, you know, whatever other herbs, um, those different types of things. Uh, if you put a name to it, a fruit, a berry, an apple, banana, those types of things, that's all smell. So that retronasal is very, very important. Same thing with the defects. When, you know, the, the fustiness and fermentations and rancidity, those, those things, you don't taste that. That's all, that's all smell. So it takes a good nose. I was just going over the list here of some of the different uh, olive oils that won awards uh, in New York. I'm um, really happy to see what the Croatians have done. Uh, I'm not surprised with what the Australians have done. I never, I've, I've never been to Croatia. That's kind of why I'm, and I've been to Albania, for example. So, you know, Albania's got a lot of problems. Um, and I think of Croatia like Albania, but I'm, I'm hoping to get to Croatia this, uh, this October and really see what they're doing. But there were a number of awards from Croatia, just, just absolutely fantastic. Um, I'm not surprised, again, by Australia. I've been to Australia. The producers there are very diligent. Um, harvest the fruit only from the tree, pristine quality, a process very quickly. Uh, you know, they're just, they're, and they there do seems a very... to be, there seems to be so much collaboration in Australia among the producers there. Uh, that's true. They're, they've got an, um, an olive oil association, but they also have the biggest producer, which is, um, you know, Boundary Bend, uh, Cobram Estates is their brand. And they have been, I would say, probably one of the most generous private companies I have ever seen in their sharing of information, not only in, uh, you know, varieties, uh, production techniques, irrigation, but pest control, har harvest equipment. They've just done so many evaluations. And now they're part of your community out there in California. Uh, yes, they are. So we know we've got uh, Boundary Bend USA, and we're looking to, um, to see some good things from them. One of the, the, the most interesting that we're going to see from them is um, uh, the development of some medium-density orchards. You know, most of the production in California, from a volume standpoint, comes from these uh, super high-density orchards, which are dominated by the Arbequina variety. Now, Arbequina variety is a fantastic variety, but it produces a milder oil. 
So when you're looking at some of these other uh, styles of olive oil where you get more bitterness and pungency and more spiciness, you've really got to go to other varieties. And so when you go to other varieties, you can't produce those varieties in that super high-density system trying to keep the trees below 9 to 10 feet tall. So you've got to go to the medium-density system. And the Australians really have been the masters in developing that system. In the training programs that they use, uh, spacing, getting the trees to come into production fairly early compared to the you know big old wide spacing that took you know eight, nine, ten years, they've been able to get pretty good production in four, five, six years. We've also done some work on that here in California. It's a it's a kind of an intermediate. It's I would call it a high density system or medium high density system. Um, you know, essentially planting trees something like uh, sixteen, eight by sixteen spacing and getting some yields in the third year by the fifth year you're you're in full production and then harvesting that fruit with an over-the-row mechanical harvester and uh, and then when of course when you do that you can you can harvest that get that to the mill very quickly and produce uh, some fantastic oils with other with these other varieties you know oji blanca and piqual and coratina and uh, you know really any variety so now you've opens opens the door to all these other really interesting, wonderful flavors. Wow. And, and that's really kind of the signature, you know, what Boundary Brand and Cobberman State's brand has done in Australia. Um, and then some of the other some of the other countries that have really, you know, just from a country standpoint, when you go there and you visit and you see their their orchards and their mills, uh, Chile has, uh, has always stood out as a place when that's uh, just done a fantastic job in producing really good olive oils. Um, I was also surprised by Portugal this year. Portugal had a number of uh, winning oils. Uh, and I've been to Portugal. Very well. T- 20 winners out of 45 entries. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's, uh, you know, that's better than they've ever done. I've been to Portugal and there's a lot of old tradition in Portugal. Portugal's a one of the you know less wealthy of the you know the European countries, and you know they've uh, they've really taken um, this whole idea of producing uh, super premium, very high quality olive oils to to task. Um, you know, Italy has traditionally been the you know the country that's produced and has a reputation of producing these super premium, wonderful olive oils. And if you look at the number of oils that they that they produce, uh, certainly uh, they rank as number one. And they've always sort of been the country to to emulate not only from the actual quality, but also the way they promoted oils. I mean, you look at the, uh, you know, the Italians are just absolute masters in promoting the, the, the specialness of things. You know, I have traveled in Spain a lot. I uh, spent a year in Spain on sabbatical leave, 2001, 2002. You know, it's, uh, it's come a long way. Uh, it used to be that uh, you, you almost had difficulty finding a really high quality olive oil in Spain. They were there, but they were sort of under the radar. I was just there uh, this last uh, spring and um, was traveling around with someone. We stopped at a gas station and went into the gas station to pay. And here on the shelf in the gas station were five or six absolutely fantastic award-winning olive oils <laughs> in a gas station. And I started talking to the attendant in the gas station. He said, oh yeah, we've We've completely changed the oils that, that we sell from what we what we used to have. Now, there are still a lot of people who Better buy. selection in a gas station than most specialty <laughs> stores in New York. That's probably true. <laughs> That's probably true. One of the other things I will say is that the, the movement has been slow to improve oils in, <clears throat> in the supermarkets in the U.S., uh, but it is getting better. 
my suspicion, the reason it's getting better is the threat of lawsuits and the negative publicity right. that some of these companies have gotten. Not so much because they've got what, this, they want to uh, do the right thing. They want to do the right thing. They just uh, they they've been doing the wrong thing for for years and years and years and getting away with it. But I used to, you know, three four years ago, I could go down to the grocery store and pick just about any of the major supermarket brands and uh, take them and I would use them uh, to show uh, defects in the courses that I taught. Well, you still could. I still can, but um, I generally have to buy two or three now and, and taste them ahead of time. Whereas before, I didn't even have to do that. I'd just go buy any of them and they were all, they were all horrible. Uh, now, there are some that are less bad than others. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, they still have a long way to go. Uh, but I really look forward to the day when those maybe those same oils are still there, but instead of being labeled as extra virgin, they're actually labeled what they are, which is virgin olive oils. Right. There's anything, there isn't anything wrong with a virgin olive oil. Um, it just you know it's not extra virgin. You just probably have to charge a little bit less money for it, or maybe you charge the same amount of money for it, and you charge more money for something that actually does meet the extra virgin uh, quality status. And then I think we also really have to go to other ways of um, recognizing olive oils. I'm not sure you know, what terminology to use. Some people have used ultra premium. There are different evaluation groups out there and different standards that people are talking about. But we kind of almost have to get beyond extra virgin because this extra virgin standard is such a low standard that it it doesn't really mean very much. I mean, if you just summarize what extra virgin means, it's essentially an olive oil without any defects. Well, I mean, how many things would we buy and describe it proudly as, oh, gee, uh, this does, just doesn't have a defect? Well, it has to have some, have some nice qualities, too. I don't know. I think extra virgin is enough. And then uh, on top of that, then you can develop your own preferences for different uh, producers or different varieties. But uh, I'd be happy with everything that says it's extra virgin being extra virgin. <laughs> That's certainly a start. And, you know, we keep talking about that. But yes, if we could at least get that, um, then then kind of go beyond that so that you could go down to the shelf. And if it says extra virgin, you're buying it, you know, you're going to get something that's not rancid, not fermented. And then you take it home and taste it and use it. And you go, oh, boy, I, you know, I really like this because it's spicy and and herbaceous and cinnamony and it goes great on my uh, salmon or on my salad or however I'm going to use it rather than taking it home and going, oh boy, this is, this is rancid and fermented and right. it's supposed to be extra virgin. Olive oil expert and international consultant, Paul Vossen, thank you. This was a very interesting discussion today. Thanks for taking the time to, to talk with me. Thank you very much, Curtis. It was fun. On Olive Oil is produced in New York by Olive Oil Times the world's leading olive oil publication. To listen to past episodes, visit onoliveoil.com.